Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Today is an exciting day for me. Right after service, I get to get in the car and run up to Camp Gonzales, which is our denomination's little Texas camp. And I'm going to be speaking there for a week for the middle school summer camp that they have up there. And so um, these things are, are some of my favorite things to do during the year. Uh, it's a different change of pace. You might be surprised, but middle schoolers are a little bit different audience than uh, adults and more my speed sometimes. Um, and uh, some of my favorite memories... Um, just of, of ministry have come from, from these uh, experiences. I think of once, um, it was two years ago in April, I was speaking at a, a, a retreat, a weekend retreat with uh, high schoolers and middle schoolers and uh, a few hundred kids there. And uh, at the very end of the weekend, we had a kind of an invitation call. And so a bunch of kids came up and accepted Christ and a bunch of kids came up and committed their lives again to Christ. And then uh, a lot of camps don't do this, but they do. And I was really appreciative of this. They had a a time where people, kids who felt called to the ministry could come up um, and be prayed over and encouraged and commissioned. And it was one of the most special moments, probably still in all of my ministry in the last decade or so, um, to have these 50 kids up at the stage with us um, and to lay hands on them and to have their leaders gathered around them and to um, cry together and pray together and just send God's blessing on them as they go upon their life. You know, it brought me back to that moment in my life where I first felt this kind of vague calling to maybe do something um, ministry-wise. I I knew that God was going to use me really no matter what, no matter what I did, but there came a point where I was like, maybe it's going to be actually in the church um, doing something of that nature. Um, And that was a very life-changing moment for me. And my my hope was in that moment, it was going to be a life-changing moment for those kids. These religious experiences are often some of the most life-changing experiences human beings encounter. Um, We have a lot of experiences that we go through, but only a handful usually rise to the top and claim the title of life-changing. They don't have to be religious. So it could be something good or bad that happened to you in your childhood. It could be the moment you discovered a special skill you had or or a calling or a career that you wanted to to pursue. It could have been getting married. It could have been um, finding out perhaps that you had this dangerous disease. There's all these things that might change our lives, these experiences we have, and yet these religious encounters, encounters with the divine, these moments where we interact in a real yet mysterious way with the living God often completely change the trajectory of our lives and of our identities. I want you to think about right now a couple moments that you perhaps have had where you have had this encounter with God, with the Holy Spirit, and it has changed you in some way. It's left an imprint on you in some way that you have forever been different. For some of us, maybe there's a handful and, and they all are kind of floating around there. For some of us, maybe there's not, and that's okay. We all once were at a place where there wasn't a moment yet. And for some of us, maybe there's a real clear moment, right? It was that moment at camp. It was that worship song. It was that sermon. It was that 
passage of scripture in my bedroom. It was then that my life completely changed. It was then that I encountered God. We are in a sermon series in the book of Galatians right now. And what Paul's going to do this morning in the passage we'll look at is he's going to appeal to the Galatians' experience of receiving the Holy Spirit when they were converted. And he's going to argue that that experience just by itself is enough to prove to them that they should stay faithful and committed to the true gospel. Um, the scripture that we read earlier, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, kind of set the theme and the tone for our worship service this morning. If you remember, it was about the uncircumcised, the Gentiles being united with Christ, with the circumcised, with the Jewish people, that wall of hostility being taken down, and the two have now become one. And this was the issue in Galatia. Paul had come and he'd preached to these Gentiles. And he said, you don't have to observe the law. You don't have to get circumcised. You don't have to have these dietary restrictions that you follow. All that you need is to have faith in Jesus. His death and resurrection is powerful enough to keep you in the family of God. The Holy Spirit can be trusted to lead you into freedom and holiness. You don't need the Torah. You don't need a Moses gospel which was some false teachers had come in and started to plant at the churches in Galatia. And Paul saw that what they were doing is the opposite of what we read in Ephesians 2. That that wall that had been torn down was being rebuilt. And for Paul, this is a disaster. For Paul, this is the biggest of distortions of the gospel. So if you have your your scriptures, let's look at it. In in Galatians chapter 3, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a, a black hardback underneath the seat around you. You're more than welcome to grab that and look along with us. Galatians chapter 3, we'll just read the first five verses here. Paul has already gone in pretty hard, pretty emotionally about the fact that they need to stick to the right gospel, that they have been um, deceived in a sense by these false teachers, and that it is Um, not only from a revelation from Jesus, but also on good authority with the rest of the apostles, that Gentiles do not have to become Jews to be fully accepted in the family of God. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says this, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? So he sets the tone right away. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, when he calls them foolish, what he most likely means is in the most strictest, strictest of sense of that word, that it's illogical what they're thinking. It's illogical for you to have come into the family of God through Christ without absor- uh, observing the Torah, the law of Moses, and then to now think the only way you can be in the family of God, and continue in the family of God, is by doing all these requirements that you didn't do to get in. Right? He says, you, you're just going backwards and none of it makes sense anymore. You've wrapped like a, a illogical, you know, hole of fallacies around you that, that you're stuck in. Um, he says, who's bewitched you? He brings in almost this like magical component. Who casts a spell over you? Um, there's actually an Old Testament background to this in Deuteronomy. One of the curses of disobeying um, the covenant uh, laws and, and commandments was that the community would start to develop an evil eye which is kind of like it's like side-eyeing somebody, right? But it had this kind of magical, mystically evil aspect to it. It's the kind of thing that families start doing to each other and they get destroyed. The kind of things that neighbors start doing to each other and then the community goes. 
This would be the fall of a nation if they stopped um, being obedient to the Lord. He says, who's bewitched you, you foolish Galatians? Now, there's another way to read that, that address right off the bat, which is interesting to me. Um, this was by far the, how the early church read it. We talked about this briefly a few weeks ago. The Galatians were not known as the coolest, smartest people in the world at that time. Their reputation was not great. Um, they were barbarians. They were not worthy of civilization. Um, they were looked down upon by pretty much every social group at the time. And perhaps Paul is purposely calling them foolish Galatians because perhaps that was a nickname that their nation, their city had. The same way that you might say something like, ah, those greedy Americans, right? Or um, those polite Canadians, those crocodile hunting Australians, Right? Nations, communities can have a character that kind of goes with them. And it's very possible that the evidence shows us that the Galatians were known as foolish people. In fact, a very early source writing about the Galatian cities uh, says this about them. Their reputation is, quote, unteachable, senseless, and slow-minded in their quest for wisdom. So there might be some sting here when he says, you, you foolish Galatians. He says, who's bewitched you? Now, the answer is obvious to Paul might not be obvious to them that they've been bewitched, but they know who he's talking about. It's these false teachers that have come in. And so Paul's now going to ask them a series of rhetorical questions, all appealing to their experience. It's very interesting. He doesn't appeal to scripture. He doesn't appeal to this deep theology. He appeals to what happened to them in order to prove his point. Now, don't worry. He keeps writing the letter and he will appeal to scripture and theology and it'll get, it'll get tricky and it'll get layered, and we'll have to dig through that together. But for Paul, just their experience of knowing Christ and living in the Spirit is enough to prove that what these teachers are teaching them is wrong. Also notice in, in verse 1, right away here, how he describes um, the conversion experience. Right before you, before your eyes, Jesus the Messiah was publicly portrayed as crucified. That phrase, Publicly portrayed has the connotation of uh, a vivid picture being painted. For Paul, the crucifixion is central to Christianity. It's central to encountering the true God, the creator God, the God of the Israelites. And it's central to being transformed, receiving the spirit and becoming a new creation. Just in the book of Galatians alone, let me list off for you some things Paul says happened because of the power of the crucifixion. In chapter 1, verse 4, the cross delivers us from the present evil age. It rescues us from an entirely evil system. In chapter 2, verse 19 and 20, also in chapter 4, verse 5, the cross murders the law, terminating its lordship that we might die to sin, the law, and the world. In 2, verse 21, the cross justifies us. In chapter 3, 10 to 14, which we'll read next week, the cross absorbs our guilt. In chapter 2, 19 through 20, it ends nationalistic Judaism. Remember, for the Galatians, one of the things Paul's trying to get them to understand is that you don't need to do something like eat kosher or get circumcised in order to be transformed into the right type of God's person. The cross by itself is powerful enough to do that. And what, what Paul's saying here is not necessarily that he gave like a, a bloody and gory presentation, like Passion of the Christ, like how much can you take? He's just saying, look, we, fit, we, we founded all of this on the crucifixion. 
It's the crucifixion and the accompanying resurrection that starts, that creates, that releases this dynamic energy into the world, this dynamic activity of God the Father and the Holy Spirit onto creation. It has the power by itself to transform. And Christians have always kept the cross at the center of their faith. At the early church, when they were developing the sign of the cross on the forehead, an early church father, Tertullian, wrote this. He he wrote a little poem about it. At every forward step and movement, at every going in and going out, when we put on our clothes and shoes, when we bathe, when we sit at table, when we light the lamp on couch, on seat, in all the ordinary actions of life, we trace upon our foreheads the sign of the cross. Religion without the crucifixion is not a Jesus-centered religion. Um, The aspect uh, of foolishness, one other aspect of foolishness the Galatians had was most likely that they did not understand the, the connection, the intense connection, the inherent connection between the crucifixion and the receiving of the Spirit. You don't get the Spirit, according to Paul, from any other thing than the work of Jesus Christ. This is what unleashes the Spirit into the world. As the prophets had said, one day God would decisively act and then he would pour out his own spirit into people's hearts. They'd be transformed from the inside out. They wouldn't need laws and Torahs and and, and regulations. And Paul says, it's this, it's the crucifixion of Jesus that unites Jews and Gentiles that allows you to receive the spirit. Paul seems to know because he was there that they had a very intense conversion experience. That the gospel message he preached to them proved powerful. And so you see this in his first rhetorical question to them. He says, let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So he is assuming here what they would have known, which is that at that time when Paul is preaching to them, they received the Spirit. For Paul, this is what happens when one um, places their faith in Christ. Um, It's a one and done deal. Perhaps there are refillings of the spirits, refreshments of sorts, but it's not something that happens when you're with Jesus and then later on the spirit shows up. No, you receive the spirit in a powerful way and we can most likely assume it was a charismatic, wild, ecstatic event. The early church, uh, the the acts of the apostles in in the New Testament describe people being converted, communities and families being converted, the spirit showing up, and then they speak in tongues. And then they perform miracles and receive miracles. All of this this stuff happens. They prophesy to one another. He says, did you receive that spirit? We all know the spirit showed up. You were there. You felt it. You saw it. You touched it. That moment of experience, what triggered it? Was it being circumcised? Was it adopting kosher laws? Or was it God's activity in the gospel message? You see, Paul knows the answer. They hadn't even learned about the requirements to be circumcised or follow kosher laws. With this one question, I think Paul trumps them completely. I think the argument's over. How did you get the Spirit? Was it with the stuff that you learned about as a requirement to get the Spirit after you had already gotten the Holy Spirit? Your experience itself proves the point here. 
You don't need to get circumcised. You don't need to follow the, the, Moses, uh, the law of Moses to, to be a Christian, to be justified, to be saved in completion. Now, this phrase, you see it twice in this passage, hearing with faith. You see it again in, in verse 5. I want to suggest it could be read better than what our English Bibles do for us here. We're reading out of the ESV, hearing with faith. Um, the phrase itself is ambiguous um, and interesting, and there's a few ways that one can parse it. What I want to suggest is this, um, that Paul is not comparing human works versus human works. So he's not saying, did you receive the Spirit because of Torah observance or belief in the message that I gave you? The way the phrase is constructed and the way Paul uses these words elsewhere, a better reading of this would, would be, did you receive the Spirit through Torah observance or through the message that was heard? In a sense, God's activity in that message. For Paul, remember, the gospel story is powerful. It transforms lives. When Paul met Christ, when God the Father revealed Jesus to Christ in this revelatory experience, it was a divine action. Paul's not comparing human works versus human works. He's comparing Torah observance, human works versus God's work. And how does God reveal Christ? When the message of the gospel is told and retold and hashed out and rehearsed at the table. It's an apocalyptic divine intervention. It's, it's a, a divine action that's being opposed to simply observing the Torah. As Protestants, we have sometimes got ourselves into a little bit of a corner because we um, worried from our, our tradition with the Roman Catholic Church, uh, have, have had some worries that perhaps um, humans try too hard to earn salvation. And so we need to make sure we understand salvation's by grace. It's a gift given to us. And yet, from my experience growing up, there was still a condition, still something you had to do, still a work you had to do. And it was to believe. Having to believe in something is doing something. Now, it might be a lot easier than some other things. But I'll tell you this, for me as a child, it definitely wasn't easier than some other things. It was torturous because I was taught that all you had to do to be saved wasn't your works. It was saying a prayer in the exact right mindset, in the exact right time, believing it exactly and fully, and then it was done. And so from eight to 10 years old, I laid in bed during the middle of the night and tried to hit it one after the other, always worried I'd never done it the exact right way. It's silly in hindsight, I'm sure, hopefully, no one ever taught it to me like that. As a teacher, I can appreciate that what the students often tell their parents is not exactly what I told them. There's maybe some parts of truth to it, but they've added their own flourish. They've heard it their own way. No, the gospel for Paul is not a different way of earning salvation. It's not a different action we take. It's God's action in us. It's the gospel message that ignites faith. We do have faith. We do trust. We do obey. We do follow Christ. But that is created in us from the power of the cross and the work of the Holy Spirit. 
So Paul asks, how'd you get the spirit? How'd you get it? And he knows the answer and they know the answer and, and they have really nowhere to go. He, he keeps on the offensive with some more rhetorical questions. He says, are you so foolish? Having begun by, uh, uh, having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Um, what he's asking here uh, is a little sarcastic. Um, when he's talking about by the flesh, this is um, quite literal. So one of the big things involved here was circumcision. So here's what Paul's asking. You started following Jesus with the Holy Spirit's work. Do you now think that to progress in your faith requires cutting off a piece of skin on your penis? Is that how you think the logic works? I mean, is, is that truly how you think that the Christian faith might progress? Now you might, because in Judaism of old, circumcision was in a sense the penultimate act of someone converting. That was the kind of the final step. You've really found out the commitment there. And this is likely what the false teachers were telling the Galatians. This is how, in a sense, you prove yourself. And to paraphrase Paul, what he might say uh, about this is, are you, are you Galatians, I mean, are you this, this unwise that you think that beginning your life in Christ by the power of the Spirit, you now somehow perfected or complete it by severing some piece of flesh? I mean, it sounds silly to us, and it, it should have sounded silly to the Galatians. We've moved past this. Question four that he asks them in verse four, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Um, the Galatians had apparently been persecuted like many of the early Christians for this. He says, look, if you're persecuted as a Christian, it is for something. If you're persecuted as a Christian, and then you go back on the whole deal and get it wrong, then it was for nothing. You, you wasted that, that persecution, that suffering. And he ends it all um, by asking this question in, in verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you, does God the Father, because of the Son, who supplies the Spirit to you, notice how Trinitarian this is. The Father, the Son, the Spirit. In five verses, the Holy Spirit's mentioned three times here. Does he who supplies the Spirit, by the way, God supplies the Spirit in abundance. God today supplies his spirit to you and I. Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so because you circumcise yourselves or because the gospel message ignites faith or because the gospel transforms lives and the spirit is triggered into a community to work miracles and wonders to make dead things new, to recreate. Does that happen because of what you ate? Did it happen because of what you were eating? No, it happened because of one thing and one thing only, the power of the gospel, the power of the crucifixion and the resurrection. So Paul appeals to their experience. And he does so in a way that I think should be instructive to us in that our experience as Christians is important. Sometimes in an attempt to be more rational and more dignified about things as Christians, we downplay our emotions or experiences. And we're all about our thoughts. We're all about our doctrines. We're all about our facts. But ideas without experiences, theology without experience is 
sterile. It's dead. It's dry. If it's not dead yet, it's going to die. Equally, on the flip side, experience without theology is just like emotion run rampant. But experience is an important thing. It's not good enough, at least for me, to know about God's love. I want to experience it. I want to be wrapped up in it. I want to be caught up in it. It's not enough for me to hear rumors of resurrection. I want to experience resurrection. I want to watch resurrection. It's not enough for me to pontificate about freedom. I want to be free. I want the chains on my ankles torn apart. And these experiences that we have as Christians become powerful tools to sustain our faith. When we get off course, they can be appealed to. Like Paul is appealing here to the Galatians. I have a few moments in my life where I I had an encounter with God. They're always kind of mysterious. That I I look back on often. Times that I'm doubting. Perhaps you're like me, and and sometimes you start to wonder, like, am I making this all up? Have I wasted a lot of time? And then there's a couple experiences that I go, I can't get past that. Like, all this doubt is here, and it's there, and it's whatever, but that's still there, and it's the trump card. There's a, a, a concept that John Wesley and his... Um, followers came up with. It's called a Wesleyan quadrilateral. Uh, and this is the most fantastic and fancy math word I know. Um, the idea is this. He said there are four sources to theology or right thinking about God. And likewise, four sources to Christian living appropriately. It's scripture, tradition, so what the church has said and done throughout history, reason, so being able to think through, like, is that a contradiction? Is that logical? Does that make sense? And then experience. And most who utilize the quadrilateral, I do, assume and, and, and make plain and clear that Scripture is above the other three. Scripture norms the other three sources here. Um, so, for instance, if I have an experience, I say, God told me to go murder somebody, um, Scripture would then say that experience was wrong, Right? Tradition would also say that experience is wrong. Reason would say that experience is wrong. There's some checks and balances there that Scripture provides. I like to think of it as a stool, actually. So think of Scripture as the stool seat, and then you have three legs that your faith stands on. Your experiences as a Christian. Your reason. Your thinking. And then the tradition of the church around you. I'll give you an example of how this might help in someone's faith and how someone who doesn't have a full understanding of the importance of these other sources of truth um, can get in trouble. This happens to a certain group of evangelicals who place all of their emphasis on Scripture and Scripture alone. I'm a big Bible guy. I've spent my entire adult life doing almost nothing but studying it and talking about it. It's hard to accuse me of not liking the Bible. Yet it happens because sometimes I say there are other things too besides Scripture. 
Because I've actually seen it happen. If all you have is scripture, then guess what? When the newest article comes out or the newest Discovery Channel program and they play some doubt in your mind about the book in your Bible that isn't there or the book in your Bible that shouldn't be there, if that's the only, if that's the only thing your faith is built on, if that's the piece, then it crumbles. It's a house of cards. This is why evangelicals became so hard-nosed about their idea, their doctrine about the Bible being 100% inerrant in all things scientific and otherwise. It's because in that philosophy of the day, the idea was you can only know something is true if there's a foundational truth. Descartes does this, right? How do I know anything? Because I first know I exist. If I didn't exist, I wouldn't know anything else. I have to find that first foundation and build upon it. Well, if scripture is the only foundation you have, then when it starts to unravel, you either push back with venom and ignore anything else anyone's saying, or you lose your faith. I'm telling you, thousands if not millions of Christians have lost their faith because they read a science book. And it never really made sense to me. I understand what happens in their minds, but I read a science book and I'm interested There's no way something in science is going to make me rethink my entire faith. But I have other things than scripture. So if you go to a Pentecostal group, they're big on experience. Guess who doesn't get bothered when they have doubts about the Bible? Pentecostals. They've got a very sturdy leg there. Because you can yell in their face all day long about what you think is true or not true, They've experienced the Spirit that Sunday. They're experiencing them throughout the week. They're prophesying to one another. You're going to say that's not real? You're going to try to convince me that that's not happening in my life? Or you can go to the Roman Catholics or the Eastern Orthodox Christians, and you'll find they're very casual about criticism of the Bible. I mean, they're top-notch scholars, but they don't get as offended as, as evangelicals do, as Protestants do, when someone challenges their interpretation. Why? They've got a very sturdy stool called tradition. Their faith is not going to be shook based on what some smart person right now is saying. Because they've had a lot of smart people that they trust since the very beginning dealing with those questions. They can trust them. And they go, I'm not the smartest person. I'm not a scholar. I'm not going to be able to defeat this or find out the truth. Who knows what the truth is about this one thing we're just now talking about. But I can trust this huge community that my faith is built upon. But yet, if you only have a stool with one leg, man, that's going to crumble fast. So so here's my my exhortation to you this morning. It's it's to, to realize that experiences are important in the Christian life. Sometimes, because I've worried in the past about just letting our experiences take control of what we think and ignoring scripture and reason and tradition, we've downplayed experiences, or I've downplayed experiences um, and the importance they have in our lives. They're important. You should seek them out. Please hear me. I'm not saying you should expect these dramatic experiences 24-7, all day, every day, for years and years and years. There are some Christians who seem like that. 
I kind of am suspicious that they like are just pathologically happy. There's nothing spiritual happening there. There's I don't. So I'm not saying perhaps it's not okay to feel like God doesn't love you right now. I've been there. I mean, I'm there a couple times every month at least, right? I mean, this is, are we being honest? But what I'm saying is I would not settle for never experiencing it. And there are things that I'm still shackled in. But I would never settle for never being freed of anything and never seeing those shackles slowly but surely come off. This is where the spiritual disciplines are so important because we know if we place ourselves there, we are very likely for the Spirit to move and for us to have this experience. At the same time, talking about experiences, we we have to say um, that experiences can be deceitful. deceitful. Um, Experiences can um, lead us astray. That's why the quadrilateral is important. Um, You have to run it through Scripture, run it through reason, run it through tradition. And finally, it's important to say this, um, you can never, you should never bully people with experience. There's two ways this happens. Um, one is to try to make all people have the same one kind of experience that you had. So you had a dramatic conversion and someone else just kind of had a decision while they're eating lunch. Those are both, both valid conversions. You can't, try to make everyone conform to yours. And two, you can't demand that every person has the same kind of powerful experience as evidence for conversion. Like if you didn't speak in tongues, then you're not converted yet, right? Or if you didn't fall on your face and cry for three hours, you're not converted yet. Or if it didn't take you um, at least you know two months to really work through all of this, you, you're not converted yet. Now, the Spirit moves how the Spirit moves. And it's just our job to trust and enjoy. This morning at the table, we will rehearse the gospel message. And like like it always has, this gospel message, the death and resurrection of Christ, it ignites faith. It's active and powerful. It transforms. The Spirit moves in and through And as we um, participate in worship this morning, I pray that you and I would um, be able to lean on our experiences, um, seasons of dryness and seasons of doubt and seasons of difficulty or persecution, um, and that we would, um, like the Galatians, um, hopefully like the Galatians, um, be able to um, have our experiences protect us um, from, from dangerous things.